Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. With the 2022 midterm election finished, Missouri House Democrats have something to celebrate. Though they are still in the super minority, the party picked up three seats this election cycle. On this episode of Politically Speaking, Democratic Representative Emily Weber joins the show to discuss why she thinks those pickups occurred. We also discuss other aspects of the election in the upcoming 2023 legislative session. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter Sarah Kellogg. Joining me is my co-host. He is the political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Rosenbaum. And joining us today via Zoom, she is the Democratic State Representative for the 24th District in the Missouri House, which covers part of Kansas City. Emily Weber. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. As a first-time guest, we kind of want to get to know you a little bit more. So if you want to kind of say who you are and, and who you represent. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, inviting me to the show as well. So I'm Emily Weber. I'm the state rep for District 24, and I represent the midtown downtown area of Kansas City. Um, A little bit quick background about me. I actually grew up in rural Kansas. Uh, I was adopted, so I'm adopted from South Korea. Um, So my dad owned Weber Surge Dairy Equipment. So we used to have an ongoing joke when I was a candidate that I might have been the first uh, urban rep to be able to milk a cow by hand. Um, so, so that was the ongoing joke during, during my first campaign. Um, you know, when I decided to run for office, it was, I, I'm graphic, graphic designer by trade. So running for office was nothing that I ever saw myself ever doing. Uh, it was not in the woodworks. And, but after the 2016 election, um, I was the day after the 2016 election, I was told by somebody at the grocery store to go back to where it came from, China at all. And so that opened up kind of my eyes a little bit more on voting wasn't voting wasn't enough. Uh, so I wanted to get more involved. Um, so that's when I found candidates like Sharice Davids uh, over on the Kansas side. And then, of course, Claire, Claire McCaskill was up, too, at some point. So I just kind of jumped the state, um, trying to help as many candidates out as possible. And then at some point, I realized my state rep was getting turned out, Um, really wanted to focus on who was replacing her, because Judy Morgan, she did an excellent job um, in the House. And I really wanted to make sure that we found we found somebody strong to replace her and started asking around and nobody was chiming in. So uh, all of a sudden, my community started urging me that it was it was my turn to take the poll and, and start running. Uh, and that that was kind of, you know, that was it. 
How does your upbringing influence the decisions that you make as a representative? As you said, you're kind of definitely an agriculture focused. I know you're on the committee. How does that kind of inform your decisions? Yes, definitely. So that when I was elected in office, um, you know, I, I told my Norney, Crystal Quaid, that one of the biggest committees I wanted to be on was ag. And the reason why was because I, I know there's an urban and rural divide. Uh, and there's always been this urban and rural divide. And I kind of have this weird blended um, background where I have the urban and I have the rural. And so I, I really wanted to be part of ag to kind of showcase that a lot of the rural issues are urban too, uh, and vice versa. Uh, they might they, they just look a little different, uh, but we have similar issues that we all can work on together. And so that was the biggest reason why I wanted to get on the Ag uh, Committee. And then, of course, this past year, I actually became ranking mem- ranking member on Ag as well. So um, a lot of my decisions, I mean, I. I, I tend to focus, if you look at the policies and legislation that I I'm, um, that I support or that I sponsor, a lot of them are either very highly controversial or uh, a lot of them are we can things that that we both agree on and we can get we can get things done. Non-controversial issues that a lot of us agree that just need to be either updated or worked on or, you know, just things like that. So. Um, those have a lot of to do with why I, why I tend to go into the ag policy world. We are recording this kind of a week and a day since the election. And so kind of let's get into those results still. We're still kind of analyzing, you know, what happened uh, this past Tuesday. So I guess kind of my first question on that is what are your initial thoughts on the 2022 election? How do you feel like Democrats fare not only in Missouri, but kind of countrywide? Uh, super excited. Oh my God. Super excited. <laughs> First off in Missouri, I mean, the house, we did great. Um, we did, there's so many, so many amazing candidates. Uh, all the candidates were amazing. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, we picked up so many great seats. Uh, so I'm super happy about that across the board. Uh, I mean, we saw Democrats winning in areas that they, they weren't winning before. And, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with reproductive health care. I think a big, a big issue, a big push is reproductive health care. I mean, we saw what Kansas did uh, back in the primary. I mean, that was that was absolutely huge. I didn't I I'm not going to lie. I wasn't I was afraid of those numbers. And when those numbers came in, I was so happy, Um, so happy to hear that that people didn't want that that right to be stripped. You mentioned uh, how you felt like Democrats and especially House Democrats did well everywhere. Can you be specific about where you felt your party did particularly well? Yeah, no, definitely. So Kansas City did extremely well. Um, we saved uh, we saved we saved our seats except for one up in um, Clay. So we saved our seats and then we picked up seats. Uh, So that was a big, huge win for us. Um, And then also Columbia was a big pickup for us as well. Um, We had the two seats there that flipped. Um, And then also in Springfield, um, Representative Lex Stephanie Hine, she wasn't even, I mean, she wasn't really on our target Um, with the demographics and everything of her district. She really wasn't on target, but she proved herself as a candidate and she worked her heart and soul out. I, I think she did eight passes in her her district 
Um, and so it was it was her as a candidate just working endlessly to make make sure that those connections made. And she ended up flipping that seat. The Democrats ended up gaining a net of three seats. And mm -hmm. I guess for somebody that doesn't follow Missouri politics that closely, they may be like three seats is kind of marginal. Can you explain why it's a big deal for your party? Yeah, it's huge. So my first election, we only picked up one seat. Betsy Fogel, Representative Betsy Fogel in Springfield was the only one, and she barely flipped that district. And so what I usually uh, like to do and talk about is, is Betsy. Flipping a district, you know, it, it seems that people have a sense of, oh, you know, we, we went around all this entire election cycle saying we only need six more seats in order to break the GOP supermajority. That's it. We need six more seats. Doesn't sound like a lot. But then I would explain to him what goes into flipping a seat. And it takes the candidate and amazing volunteers, staff, money, of course, um, to, in order to get this done. And Betsy had to raise over $200,000. And she had to knock her district three to four times. She had to have the staff to help her. She had to have the money to have the mailers and the um, digital ads and things like that to go out to make sure that she made those connections with people. And the Republican Party spent, and we're just talking about the actual Republican Party, not her opponent. They spent over $500,000 in attack ads on her, uh, her first election cycle. And so that's what we're up against. We don't have that kind of money to um, go after that. And to push that, you know, Betsy, Betsy had to raise a ton of money herself. And then we helped her, uh, you know, HGCC helped her. And so to, in order for us to get the three seats and the pickups, I mean, that was huge because it takes a lot of time, a lot of money and um, a lot of groundwork. And I want to make this clear before I ask this question. I agree with you wholeheartedly that your performance was extremely impressive. And I understand that going from where you were before last Tuesday to gaining serious ground is going to be a multi-election effort. And it's not going to be a magical election where you gain 40 seats. But with that as a backdrop, even though you were successful in Boone County, Greene County, and Platt County, Democrats continue to struggle in other suburbs like Jefferson County, St. Charles County, Cass County. And I know Buchanan County isn't a suburb, but it is a traditionally democratic area. What do you think it's going to take for your party to start being competitive in those areas again? Which if you are, I think you will end up breaking the supermajority before the end of the decade. Yeah. So um, no, I, I agree with you. So in those in those counties where we either held at one point or we didn't, you know, Cass County, Cass County was blue up until uh Obama was elected for president. So and now it's turned red. So so in those areas, we are now focusing. And so HGCC, we have kind of a new. They're, for they're, for they're our listeners, new... can you kind of define what that is? You're given for the acronym. Can you say what that is for our listeners? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> House Democratic Campaign Committee. Perfect. Continue. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. So HGCC, they they have been with us uh, the start. Well, we've always had HGCC. They've kind of be, been updated with minority leader Crystal Quaid. So Crystal Quaid has kind of 
taken HGCC and we are doing it very differently. So we give all of our candidates um, free access to minivan, uh, which is the, the application that we need to, when we go do door knocking and phone banking and um, voter, it's your voter, data, uh, voter database. And then also we give them free templates for mail, um, lit. Uh, we help them with trainings on social media. We also show them trainings on minivan, on how to cut turf. Um, and then also we give them free headshots and then free websites. And so that's offered to all of our candidates because at the end of the day, we need, we can't, we, and then we have our target areas as well, because at the end of the day, we can't spend 200 to $300,000 on each candidate because that's just not feasible at this moment. And so we have our target districts. Now with uh, areas in like Cass County and like some of those other in like Jefferson County and things like that, we have HGCC is employed year long round. So that's something new to most of the time. Um, most of the time they're only employed during election season. And then of course that they're unemployed on the off cycles. We keep them year long round and on the off cycles, they go out into those areas and they have um, conversations with their local democratic committees. Uh, or local people who are very interested in politics, things like that. And we, we start figuring out who, um, who is it that they think would want to run or what people in their community uh, look like, you know, people that would eventually run, things like that. And we start having conversations with them early on, getting them to understand what it looks like to run for office also. And then we we give them the tools necessary to help to help them run for office, uh, and we are starting to do a huge push. I was out in Cass County along with uh, Representative Patty Lewis this election cycle, helping um, the candidate Patty Johnson, and uh, the conversations we were having in Cass County were absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, we were talking to Republicans also, not just Democrats, because we have to have Republicans also vote for this Dem. And the conversations we were having were, were really great. They were having the conversations of, hey, we're sick and tired of having our grandkids scared to go to school because a lot of the older communities we were, we were having the, the more conversations with, they were also were very worried about reproductive health care. And these weren't just women, these were men too. Uh, they were tired of getting neglected. And uh, from what I've been told, the state rep there right now has told people, you didn't vote for me, I don't represent you. And so that to me is um, really disheartening because as a representative, you're a public servant, you represent your district no matter what. Um, and so they they were also afraid that they weren't gonna get the help that they needed if they needed some you know help with Medicaid or uh, unemployment or anything and needed to contact their state rep. Democrats, even with the gains, Democrats are still in the super minority. Do you think that these pickups, though, will maybe change dynamics in the House? Why or why not? Yeah, so I, I think it will change dynamics in the House. Um, these pickups are uh, the new new slate of uh, freshmen are absolutely amazing uh, across the board. I, I can't wait to start working with them. I can't wait to see what they end up doing in the House. They all have they all come from different backgrounds. Um, they all worked 
their butts off to get here. So, and, and they're ecstatic to start working now. I mean, they are, they're ready to jump in. So I am really hopeful um, about what's going to happen. Now, again, yeah, we are, we didn't break the GOP supermajority. So yes, it's still going to be difficult for us um, to get things done, but we proved last, um, last session, you know, we passed, Democrats got the most bills passed in a while. Um, so I am very hopeful that we can continue to just move on and start passing legislation that needs to be passed and working together. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit, but I really want to get into kind of the why of these gains. Um, so one reason why might be, you know, a bipartisan commission drew the new House map. You guys had a new House map this year, and it was said to be a more competitive one and, and could possibly a Democrat. So do you feel like the map gave you an edge? I do. I do. The, the, gap, the, the map did give us an edge. We had technically, if you looked at the seat or the look at the map, we have eight seats that um, that were ours. If you look at the the demographics in it, and so all of that, you know, we we picked up three seats. Yes, but technically on that map, there's eight seats that that can be gained. And uh, HGCC is not going to quit working. We're I'm not going to quit working. <laughs> Um, we have we have placed people in here where we are going to continue to push and make sure that we get we get our seats back. And then I know you really spoke about reproductive health as maybe a non-MAP reason. So kind of what were some other policy reasons? And if you want to even talk about that a little bit more as to why these gains happened. Yeah, definitely. I mean, reproductive health care was the biggest one. That was the biggest one. Uh, every time we came to a door, it was about reproductive health care. It was about, uh, you know, they were afraid about their birth control. They were afraid about ectopic pregnancies because that came up in the house too. And so they're worried about this. And People are really focused on what's going on in, the, in their own backyards at this moment because, you know, a lot of people like to focus on federal and not local. And I think now they understand local is where it is affecting them more. Uh, marijuana also, that was a big one. I mean, that was also a big push um, for people to come to the polls. You know, there, some were excited to pass marijuana. Others were not. Uh, you know, it was it was a big push to get everybody to the polls though. And I think that helped us as well. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Representative Emily Weber. And we're back on Politically Speaking. Our guest today is Representative Emily Weber. She's a Democrat in the Missouri House. So we're going to still talk the election a little bit, uh, kind of on a larger scale. So Missouri still went red, still went Republican when it came to the U.S. Senate election. But do you feel that Trudy Bush Valentine, you know, being the candidate or even just having a U.S. Senate race on the ballot helped kind of other races that were further down? Oh, of course. Yes, I, I, I do believe that. I do believe that helping it was you know down ballot, helping others uh, get picked up too. Yes, I do believe that because of Trudy, we definitely picked up some more voters. Trudy Bush Valentine came into the U.S. Senate race very late. And I, I agree with you that given that, I think she did OK. 13 point loss is not great. But given that she jumped into the race late and spent a lot of money, she could have done a lot worse. Mm -hmm. But I think it also showcases that Democrats need to put forth statewide candidates for these major offices, not the day before filing ads. They need to start thinking about this now. So I guess my question is, what process is our Missouri Democrats going through right now to make sure that they have a gubernatorial candidate and a U.S. Senate candidate in 2024 
that can start building the momentum now as opposed to having to get in late. A hundred percent agree with you on that one. And and that is a long game because running for a statewide office, I mean, that is um that is a lot of time and dedication and a lot of money. And and you, you know, you really have to find the perfect candidate that wants to that wants to do this. Um, I mean, it's hard finding candidates for state house seats, uh, let alone, you know, statewide seats. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll go back to this. What HGCC is, is kind of doing is we are building these candidates up. And so when they go into discussing um, in different counties with people, they're having the conversations of what is it that you want to do? Maybe you want to run for state rep. Uh, maybe you don't. And they have the conversations and the person might be like, I don't want to run for state rep right now. I want to run for something else that's maybe more local in my community. So let's look at your school board or city council. Um, and then what we're trying to do is build these candidates up. So eventually then they can run for state rep, then they can run for Senate, and then they can run for U.S. Senate. And then we have somebody in place for governor. We're not always searching and we're trying to make sure that we have a bench and the bench is built. And this is something that Missouri has not been really great at. And so I, I we are building this up and it will take a few, it, it will take time. Uh, but we are definitely looking, of course, you know, um, what, what, when's the next election? Um, it's two years from now. Yeah. <laughs> a, are, are, okay. Yeah. I, I think that's been a big reality for Missouri Democrats is that their bench is just not great right now. Yeah. And the, the fact that um, you had a U.S. Senate candidate nominee that had never been a statewide official before. That was the first time since 1994 that either the Democratic nominee for Senate was not a statewide official or not an incumbent senator. And the reason I mentioned that is like you need that type of pre-existing infrastructure to run a race like the U.S. Senate. And 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 look, I, I'm not naive. The person that gets the Democratic nomination against Josh Hawley is probably going to be able to raise 50 or 60 or 70 million dollars organically because Josh Hawley is such a controversial figure. Mm -hmm. But it goes but it goes back to what I was talking about before. If the Democratic nominee is doing really well in suburbs and cities, but getting blown out in exurban areas and getting blown out even more in rural Missouri, you could raise 70 million dollars. But Josh Hawley's still going to win. So is that part of the reason why, like Democrats like yourself, need to build momentum in House and Senate races so you can recreate that coalition again? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's that's what we're trying to do right now. It's because, I mean, we don't have a bench and and everybody knows it. Um, and we, and we have we have struggled there for a while. And so right now, that is why we are trying to build this up. Uh, because this is what we're, I mean, and it's proven that it's working. Um, we are, you know, the few years that HCCC has been taken over the way it's been run right now, it's been proven that it's it's actually working. And so that's what we are trying to do because we need to take back the counties and we need to make sure that we have candidates that are prepared to run, know how to run and know what it's going to be like to have to raise that much money and go after somebody like Josh Hawley. And so um, that's what we are. That's what we are doing. And yes, it will take years. I mean, it's going to take a few years for us to build it completely more. But we are moving in a forward path and we're not going backwards. 
Switching gears a little bit, how big of a factor do you think that Amendment 3 was in getting people to the polls? Yeah. Um, so I think... And, and for our listeners, Amendment yeah. 3, also Legal Missouri 2022, uh, basically further expanded the use of marijuana state to include adult use. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, I think that was a, a big push to get people to the polls. I think that helped us as, along with reproductive health care. You know, uh, everybody has been, if you if you talk to anybody, they want to legalize marijuana. Uh, and that has been the conversation for a while now. Uh, we've tried to pass it in the House. We had a really good piece of legislation in the House. Unfortunately, it did not go anywhere. Now, uh, the amendment, it was not perfect. And we all know it was not perfect. Um, and it had a lot of issues. But at the end of the day, it did pass. Um, and so we will have to make sure that the issues that were in that amendment that we can try to try to fix uh, at a state level. I have a follow up to this. I think that there has been an assumption that legalizing marijuana for medicinal use or adult use is a quote unquote democratic issue. But looking at the results, it looks like it passed in pretty conservative areas. And it also from I know that there was a Republican opposition to legalizing marijuana to adult use. But in the legislature, some Republicans were for it. Mm -hmm. Is it is this really a democratic issue or do you think this is an issue with some bipartisan appeal? Oh, this is bipartisan appeal. Um, this is definitely, I believe, bipartisan appeal. Uh, the the state rep was a he's he turned out. So the state rep that had the legislation for legalizing marijuana um, in the House. He was a Republican and he was working across the board with Republicans with police, uh, former police officers, with uh, people who um, were concerned with, you know, prison reform. He was he was working with, I mean, he worked with as many as as many people as possible to try to make this bill perfect, because he wanted to make sure that there was going to be expungements. He wanted to make sure what issues law enforcement uh, law officers had with this, uh, you know, what they needed to have. He worked with attorneys. Um, he really was trying to push. And so I do think that this is a bipartisan bipartisan bill. You know, another amendment passed uh, was Amendment 4, which for and, you know, as the Kansas City rep, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts on this. It, you know, forces Kansas City to allocate more funding to its police department. It passed on a statewide measure. You know, what are your thoughts on this amendment passing? <laughs> <laughs> I sit on the floor um, about this piece of le legislation. Actually, a lot of Kansas City reps stood on the floor. We were very upset about this. This is a government overreach. Uh, this is a, um, we don't do this for anybody else, you know, uh, and it was absurd that an entire state can vote on what Kansas City does with their funds for police officers. It was, you know, Chillicothe should not be voting on what Kansas City is doing with our funds. We don't vote on Chillicothe's funds. So why are we doing it to Kansas City? It, it was a complete gover government overreach over what happened, if you all remember, a few years ago with city council when they were trying to reallocate funds within the police department's budget uh, on social services that were within the police department. So this was no defunding the police. 
But because some of the uh, people on the other side of the aisle believed that this was defunding the police and that's what they were running with, this was the piece of legislation that came up. And I believe it is a complete just government overreach. What precedent do you think this sets up for possible other amendments for the legislature to bring up? I mean, it shows that they they can do something like this. It it definitely depends. Uh, it really depends on what happens within you know different communities and things like that. But yes, I mean amendments like these can always always come up. So we're going to shift to a session preview or gosh, I know the election's just over, but session's a month and a half away or so. Uh, so will kind of the, the results of this election change how Democrats make decisions in the House this year? Why or why not? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we gained three seats. Uh, you know, the demographics are going to look a little differently. Um, so we, you know, we, we are building and working across the aisle already on some legislation. And we are also working on legislation that we definitely need to protect, like birth control and, repro and reproductive health care and making sure that we try to um, clear up any of the language that's that's happening right now that, you know, women are dying on the hospital beds because of the terms that are being used in the legislation. And so we are really focused on things like that. And then, of course, um, with all of the, well, with the, the shooting that happened in St. Louis at the school, that was something that could have been prevented with red flag law. Um, you know, of course, uh, issues with common sense gun laws in the state of Missouri, uh, the other side, they do not want to have those conversations. They want to have the conversation of opening gun gun laws for everybody. And it's not working. And in these areas, especially in Kansas City, and especially in, in St. Louis, we're seeing we're seeing more crime and we're seeing more we're seeing more accidents too with with guns, you know, things like that. So we are really looking and focusing on some common sense gun laws as well. Um, those are things that we are, of course, looking at. On the red flag law issue, um, and and red flag law is just I want to make sure I'm defining that correctly. It's when there is a judicial process to take away guns from somebody who is a harm to themselves or a harm to others. Is is that is that correct? First yeah. of all, I want to make sure I'm defining that correctly. So I I want to bring up this scenario, and I understand that this is brought up by opponents of red flag laws, and it may seem like it's being asked in bad faith, but I think this is a really serious issue. Like, I don't want to see an issue where somebody who is an abuser of somebody uses a red flag law to disarm their partner and then uses that opportunity to attack them. So can you write legislation that takes that specific scenario in mind? I mean, that's something that we we could absolutely have conversations and, and dig deeper on. This isn't, uh, you know, we're not trying to make this this um, because there's gray areas in so many, so many places. And so definitely those are the conversations that we want to bring up and have. Uh, now, the other side, they, they don't even want to bring up the, the whole conversation of even let's talk about red flag law. Um, so, but yes, those, those are conversations and those are things that we can help and we can help figure out to write a good piece of legislation about this. You know, I talked to Representative Ian Mackey, who plans to refile his 
previous red flag law. And he said he's actually had conversations with Republicans more so since the shooting um, than before with at least an openness to talk about it. So do you think that, you know, unfortunately, this shooting might be this catalyst that causes this compromise legislation? Like, do you think this is an area where there could be a compromise? I, I think this might be an area where we, if Ian Representative Ian Mackey is having conversations uh, with Republicans, yes. I mean, this is a conver- this is we can start having those open conversations now. And that that to me, that's great. I, I want to switch to abortion. I'll be brutally honest with you. I don't think there's any path to change the abortion ban in the legislature. But I've heard a lot of chatter about going the initiative petition route and repealing Missouri's abortion ban, which for our listeners, abortion is banned in Missouri, except for, quote unquote, medical emergencies, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. How realistic do you think it is that a ballot initiative could be put before voters in 2024 on this issue? I think that's very realistic. And what would you want to replace the ban with? I think that's probably what's being discussed now. Like if you repeal the abortion ban, there would still probably be parameters about when somebody could get an abortion. Like, do you have any ideas about what the ban to be replaced with? And those conversations are happening right now uh, because, I mean, it's such um, so so much is going into it. This is not just a you you can't just simply repeal back. Um, so a lot of conversations are happening right now on what this looks like. And so language is still being brought up and things like that. I think that this is coming up with discussions about re- particularly Republicans wanting to change the initiative petition process. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Like you could require more signatures. You could require, especially for constitutional amendments, to be 60 percent instead of 50 percent plus one. Um, I I talked with Senate Majority Leader Cindy O'Loughlin. I think that's going to be a priority for Republicans in this next session or two. Um, What what do you foresee on that particular issue? Yeah, the initiative petition process, I mean, this has been a priority for Republicans for a few sessions now. I mean, I have only been in session, um, you know, I've I've only served, served one term, so I've only been there for two years. But the two years I, I've been in there, um, the tax on initiative petitions are are strong, you know, but we've we've held our own, but they they continue to attack. So moving for, forward, we are going to always have to defend our initiative petition process. Now with redistricting, uh, some of these state reps are in a situation where they're kind of in a rural urban um, district and a lot of their constituents are probably going to be pushing them on not re- not doing anything to the initiative petition because they all love, they all love it too. Uh, this is how we get, you know, Medicaid expanded. This is how um, we get marijuana. You know, this is how we got medical marijuana. Uh, there, there's a lot of great things that that the constituents of state of Missouri are able to vote on because they know in the House it's a very long process, and this is the quickest way for them to get things done. So um, we will always have to defend and fight for our initiative petition to stay as it is. I mean, that will always be something that, and we we knew this going in. I mean, we knew exactly when um, Roe was overturned 
we already knew that the other side were had plans on destroying the initiative petition as quickly as possible. And we know that that, that is number one, we have to defend that. And, and that was going to be my my next question on this. How do you think that those potential changes could in, impact how a hypothetical abortion ban repeal and replace goes toward voters? Because as I kind of alluded to, I think that the focus will be on changing how constitutional amendments are put into the Constitution. But you could still hypothetically do a statutory change that would not require 60 percent. But that in itself is risky, because even if that passes, the legislature could just repeal that the next session. So with that as a backdrop, like how does this change how opponents of the abortion ban go forward with this initiative? I mean, it's it's going to be slightly a little different. I We will have to see with that one. Because uh, there's so many different ways that we can do this, uh, and there's so many different ways they can do this too, and so we will definitely have to see, um, you know, the processes that are being pushed forward. So last year, uh, redistricting took up a lot of oxygen during the session, and you know, not having it this year might free up. It will free up a lot of time for the majority to get some of these policy priorities. So what? You know, one, will do you think Democrats are going to be more on the defensive this year? And kind of two, what are some policy areas? We've talked about some of them now. Uh, are you really going to be looking out for things to kind of push back against? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for sure, on what we were just talking about, initial petition, push back against uh, common sense gun laws or another one that we're looking at. Um, we're also, of course, anything that's going to help or make sure that we keep our birth control safe and legal. Um, and things like that. Also, education. Education's or education's always always an attack, um, and it's been an attack in the past. You know, again, well, forever. Education's always on the line, and it's getting worse. So we're seeing a lot, a lot of education um, legislation that we're looking at that we're going to have to uh, defend, and also create new legislation to, to help. You know, the House and Senate the past couple of years, you know, I've only been in this position now for about, I guess, a year. And so this will be my section, my second session covering it. And so, you know, the, the House and Senate have truly butted heads on a level that I do think has been elevated. Do you think that with new leadership that this will continue? I think I, I'm hopeful with new leadership. Uh, with new leadership right now, I'm very hopeful. Uh, it's, you know, we are we are hopeful with with um with Representative Dean Walker. I think he will be an excellent speaker. Um so so we are really very hopeful with that. Um again though with the the other side, they their their caucus is a little bit split right now uh with conservatives and Republicans, and they have done some infighting. So we will and I they their caucus split even more. So we will have to see what happens this next session. All right. Well, thank you so much, Representative Weber, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our work on stlpr.org. And Representative Weber, where can people kind of find you on social media where you want to be found? Yeah, of course. You can find me on social media. At, my handle is Emily. 4MO. It's the number four. So it's Emily 4MO. Until next time, so long.